Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marvelled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Thanks, Jude. I just want to encourage everybody to keep your Bible open there. We're particularly going to be looking at verses 23 uh, to 27 in that passage this morning. Uh, hopefully on your way in, you were handed or offered at least a sermon outline. There's a couple there. There's one for kids, uh, help you follow along, and there's one for adults uh, with a rough outline and then some questions that maybe uh, you can consider later uh, at some point. Now, I wonder whether or not you have ever been guilty uh, of underestimating someone or something. Uh, maybe you're a person who underestimates uh, how much something is going to cost. Uh, you start this new project, uh, you put the car into the mechanic for a small uh, job, uh, or you go on a holiday, and then in any one of these things, we suffer this budget blowout. It costs a lot more than we thought. We sort of underestimated the cost. Uh, or maybe you're a person who underestimates um, how long it's going to take you to get somewhere. Uh, you think, oh, you know, I'll, we're in Geelong, that'll be 10 minutes away, and then sort of half an hour later you rock up, and you thought, oh, that took a little, little longer than normal. Uh, maybe you did that this morning coming to church. Uh, maybe a lot of us do that uh, on Sunday mornings coming to church uh, as well. Maybe, maybe you have underestimated someone before. There's a pretty famous example of that in Albert Einstein. Uh, winner of the, the Nobel Prize, uh, well-known for being a genius, big-brained kind of guy. Uh, but for much of the first decades of his life, he was completely underestimated. Uh, it's said that he didn't start walking until he was three, didn't say a word until he was four, couldn't write until he was seven. Uh, his nickname as a kid growing up was the Dopey Kid. Uh, he even failed his first university entrance exam. For a good portion of his life, he was completely underestimated. Maybe you've done that before with someone. Underestimated their abilities only for later on to be completely blown away. Well, this morning we're going to think about someone who has been underestimated many, many times. And someone whom we can underestimate as well. And this underestimation actually comes with huge consequences. 
for how we live our lives. You see, it's really easy for us to underestimate the Lord Jesus. To underestimate his power, his knowledge, his love, his compassion, his mercy. And that carries with it consequences for how we live our lives. So today, this morning, we're going to carry on a series where we're unpacking the names or the titles that are given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Names that help us understand who Jesus is. Last week, we looked at the name Wonderful Counselor, the King, the, the, the King with a plan, with a wonderful plan to set people free by offering his life as a ransom. And today, we're looking at the next name, the name Mighty God. And to do that, we're going to look at this passage, this very familiar story from Matthew. With Jesus on a boat with his disciples and a great storm. But on his boat with disciples who are underestimating Jesus. Particularly, they're underestimating his power and his concern. Now, when we started reading this morning, I want you to have a look at your Bible here. Uh, we started a little bit before the passage on the boat. We find Jesus getting into a boat to go onto the other side of a lake with his disciples. And as he's getting in, he's actually approached by two men who want to follow him. They want to be his followers. And in a sense, it's not surprising that they would want to do this. Uh, Jesus' stocks are on the rise at this point in his ministry. Uh, chapters 5 through 7 is what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that three-day conference where Jesus doesn't take a break uh, and he just keeps bringing God's word to them. And at the end of that, the crowds who heard him are amazed because he speaks with authority, not like the speakers they are used to hearing. And throughout the first part of chapter 8, Jesus heals a number of different people. And he heals some of them in quite a public way. And so his people are gathering around him, wanting to follow him. And that's actually part of the reason why he wants to get into the boat, to go across the other side of the lake. He's actually looking for a little bit of rest from these crowds. But as he's getting in, these two approach him and they ask the question, uh, can we follow you or I will follow you? Uh, but Jesus isn't particularly kind to them. He basically says, think carefully about what you are asking for. Because it's going to cost you everything. Don't underestimate uh, the cost of following me, says Jesus. Because this is no casual affair. It will demand everything from you. Well, as Jesus finishes saying this, he gets into the boat. And then we're re reminded that there are those who are following him. Who are considering the cost and who are going with him. They're the disciples. They get in the boat and they go out into the lake with Jesus. Uh, but within a short period of time, they've got to be asking, is it really worth it? Because as a storm comes up, they begin to fear for their lives. Here we go. We gave up everything. We sacrificed it all. We did what Jesus asked us to, only for it to end this way. Drowning in a boat 
on a lake while Jesus caught up on some rest. You see, although they are following, they are underestimating Jesus. And I want to focus this morning on two ways that it's possible to underestimate Jesus. And how Jesus in this miracle reminds us that he is mighty God. Firstly, we underestimate his power. We fail to realize, in a sense, who's in the boat with us. The one who is supreme in power. The one through whom the universe was created and for whom it all exists. We underestimate the power of Jesus. Now, why would we do that? I want to look at a couple of reasons. Firstly, we do that because there are some areas in our lives where we consider ourselves to be the experts. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that this happens on a boat with disciples. And at least four of them that we know about were actually fishermen and fishermen on this lake. They grew up on boats. They grew up on water. They grew up dealing with the weather. This is an area where they are experts. They know what is going on. And so you can imagine that for a while there is the sense, hey, we can handle this. We, we can do this. And if we can't handle it, how can Jesus be expected to handle it? This is our area of expertise. And I wonder if there's times where we still underestimate Jesus for the same reason. We can handle it. I'm the expert on me. I know what I want. I know what I need. I know what is right and what's best for me. I'm the expert in my workplace. I know what to do. I have experience. I've, had, I've got training. I, I, I know how to handle things. I'm the ex expert in my family. I know my, my wife. I, I know my kids. I've read the books. I've got good examples that I've followed. But do you notice what happens? <laughs> Jesus shows his power here right at the point where the disciples think themselves experts. He shows himself to be the one who is in control. But there's another reason why we can underestimate the power of Jesus. And it's because we forget who he is. See, there's something really special going on here in the boat. Throughout the Old Testament, there are references to storms and to waves and to the uncontrollable creation. But there is one only who commands it. Well, listen to this. It comes from Psalm 104. Listen to what it says. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with a, the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled, and the sound of your thunder they took to flight. There is only one who has the power over creation, who creates storms and who calms storms, and that is God himself. And that is exactly the point that Jesus, and Mark as he's writing this, is making. 
here in the boat is more than a good teacher, more than a good man, more than a casual miracle worker. Here is God himself. He says, as we come up again to Christmas this year, it's, it's important, isn't it, to remember what we are celebrating and who we are celebrating. Yeah, it's wonderful when a, when a baby is born, any child is born, but this is no ordinary child. This is God incarnate. He is God made flesh. God made one of us. To his divine nature, the, the, the second person of the Trinity adds a human nature and a human form. Oh, it might be tempting to just look at him as a, as a man or, 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 or a good man. It might be tempting for us to look at him as somehow as less than God because he comes in human form. But he's not half God, half man. He's not demigod or in between. He is God himself with power over all that there is, with power over all of creation. You see, in a sense, it is impossible to overestimate the power of Jesus. Whatever we think of, whatever we imagine he can do, he can do even more. He's powerful in the areas where we think we are the experts. In fact, nothing happens without his say-so. He's powerful in the areas where we are completely out of our depth and we've got no clue what is going on. He's powerful when we think we've got it all together and we think we're running the show. He's powerful even when we doubt him and when we fail to recognize who he is. Nothing happens in our lives and in our church and in our world without his say-so. Nothing happens in our health. Nothing happens in our government. Nothing happens in our jobs. Because he is God and he is powerful. Don't underestimate the power of Jesus. But there's a second way in here in which we can underestimate Jesus. And that is that we can underestimate his concern for us. We fear, like the disciples feared, not just because we underestimate his power, but because we underestimate what he uses that power for. That he is ultimately concerned for his people. You notice that voice of desperation in the disciples as they cry out in verse 25. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. There's a sense of, don't you know what is going on here? In the Gospel of Mark, it's even clearer. Don't you care that we are perishing? So what does Jesus do? Not only does he show his power, but he's showing what he can do with it and what he does do with that power. He's demonstrating his concern for disciples 
in his willingness to save me. He is the mighty God. Now when we think about that title, mighty God, that the imagery of Jesus in the boat, calming the, calming the storm, rebuking the wind and the waves, kind of fits, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus showing that he is mighty, that he is powerful. But it's interesting when these two words, mighty and God, are used together in the Old Testament, it's showing God's power to rescue his people. In Deuteronomy 10, the two words are used together in the context of God owning everything in heaven and earth, all of creation belonging to him, but yet him coming down to deliver, to rescue his people out of Egypt. The combination of words is used again in Jeremiah 22, and it tells the people to look back and see that God was the mighty warrior who brought them out of Egypt and who will now bring them out of Babylon. The same true in Isaiah chapter 10. He has come with mighty power to save his people, to bring people into his family and to be their shepherd forever. What does God use this mighty power for? He uses it to show his concern and to rescue his people. But there's something even bigger than that going on here. In the Old Testament in particular, and even in our world today, threats from natural disasters or creation disasters signify that there is something very much wrong with our world. There is something wrong in the creation. What was meant to be a blessing and what we were meant to enjoy has become wild and untamed and and a threat to our existence. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. The fall and the curse that comes on creation. God says it plainly to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And from that moment, the world created by God, which was meant to be enjoyed and provide food and to be cultivated, became wild and untamable and uncontrollable and a threat. So what is Jesus doing here? He is showing the creation, the cosmic dimensions of his power and of his concern. He's showing where his power is directed and the extent of his kingdom. He's come as the rightful ruler over all of creation. He's come as the redeemer of lives and the redeemer of all that has been made. This miracle is a foretaste of that work where he is putting everything right again. Because on the cross, he would deal with the world and he would deal with the curse of sin. He would undo the curse of sin and set the world free from its slavery. He began his refining work that will be completed when he comes again. This is the extent of the concern of Jesus. Everything. All of creation. All that has been made. 
restored once again to its maker. That's his goal. The restoration of everything back to the Father. That's what the mighty God has come to do with his power. That's what the mighty God has come to do on the cross. You see, just like there is nothing that is outside of the power of Jesus, neither is there anything that is outside of his concern. No problem that he does not know about. No relationship that he is not concerned about. No plan that he does not care about. No heartbreak that he is not interested in. The furthest reaches of creation are his concern. And so too the furthest reaches of our lives. There is not a single part of our lives where we cannot trust him and put our faith in him and rely on him. He's concerned for all of it. Now, in a sense, the disciples get a bit of a bad run uh, in this section. Uh, Jesus rebukes uh, the wind and the rain, uh, the waves, and uh, he rebukes his disciples a little here as well. Not harshly, uh, but gently. And he rebukes them, or tells them off, for fear and having little faith. I don't know about you, but I read that and I I get a little bit worried. uh, Because sometimes I see myself as a disciple uh, of fears uh, and of little faith. But I want to notice a few things here about the little faith of the disciples and what Jesus does with it. They follow even though their faith is little. Even though their faith is weak. There's a comparison being made here between two that come up to Jesus beforehand who who, who Jesus talks about what it costs to follow and then immediately after it tells us that the disciples followed him. A little faith is all that is required to follow Jesus. Little faith doesn't remove us from his power or his concern. Even small faith can cry out to him and look to him. Not only that, but Jesus saves them even though their faith is little. You see, the great thing about Christ is it's not the level of our faith that makes him powerful. He's powerful without our trust in him. It's not the strength of our faith that matters, but it's the strength of the one in whom we have faith. We might be thinking that our faith is pretty weak. There might be situations where we're struggling to trust him where we're trying to take control or thinking that Jesus is not interested or not concerned. But Jesus doesn't rely on the strength of our faith to answer our cries for help. 
He didn't wait for our faith to save us. He made the first move. And he doesn't rely on the strength of our faith today. And finally, I want to notice that he uses this instance to build the faith of his followers. He uses a situation out of their control, completely helpless, crying for help to show them who he is so that may not underestimate him quite the same way next time. He does that still, doesn't he? He takes those times where we think it's hopeless, where we feel helpless, where we doubt whether he's going to be involved. And he reminds us again that he is mighty God. He is loving Savior. He is powerful and he is concerned. And when our faith is in him, it will never be put to shame. Let's pray to him now, shall we? Lord, we acknowledge that uh, it's really easy um, for us to think of you as less than, uh, less than mighty God, less than all-powerful, uh, less than totally concerned about our lives. We thank you for this reminder this morning, Lord God, that you can be trusted, that when our faith is in you, our faith is not in vain, that you are the God who hears our prayers, hears our cries, who is powerful, who is concerned, and who delivers. Lord, remind us of that this Christmas time, uh, as we remember that you came into this world. Uh, help us not to be distracted by a cute baby and tinsel and presents and days off. Remind us again uh, that this is the mighty God who has come to save his world. We pray this for your sake. Amen.